coming to you from the Barrier Island Center on Virginia's eastern shore. This is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. In each episode, we try to give you a different perspective of life on the eastern shore, whether it's about an occupation or simply stories of what people who have lived here have done in their careers. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Sharing the Mic is a monthly podcast with each new episode appearing the first of each month. In this episode, I'm going to depart from our usual format. I realized that we've been sharing the mic with you for almost three years, and during that time we've spoken to a lot of people. People who have contributed to the programming and visibility of the Barrier Island Center and in some ways preserving an oral history of the place and organization that we now know and love. In reviewing this body of work, I have taken excerpts from several past interviews. Together, they tell a rather compelling story. Devlin Barrett, a Washington Post reporter and author, sets the stage. I know that you grew up in upstate New York. Uh, Tell me... What's your relationship to the Eastern Shore? So I guess you could say I'm a lifelong come here, which means in my case, my grandparents uh, owned a farm here. Uh, I would come here in the summers and uh, I worked for my grandfather a couple summers when I was in high school uh, and I've been coming here my whole life. Did you spend a lot of time most every summer or? Yeah, uh, especially when I got a little older, when I was a teenager. I spent uh, whole summers here. Uh, My grandfather had started a a nursery garden business, and I just worked for him. Oh, that's cool. Um, So, And I worked, you know, uh, 300 yards from where we're sitting. Right, right. And I just worked out in the sun, and it was, uh, was, I wouldn't call it fun work, but it was what I think they like to call character building. Yep. yep. Um, and my grandparents were great, and they were great to me, and I was I was a lucky kid. You certainly were. Uh, just for our listeners, uh, you've mentioned this land and work just 300 yards from here. Tell us what that relationship is. I know that the Barrier Island Center, when it was incorporated, bought land from your grandparents. Right. So we're in Machapungo, Virginia, one of my favorite place names on earth. Uh, I believe it means dusty place. Um, and my family history is my my family has lived in this place for generations. We're sitting uh, in the bar- what's now the Barrier Island Center. It used to be the Alms House, right. uh, which was where poor people were taken care of uh, in another era before social programs. And in, I believe, the 50s or 60s, my grandfather uh, bought this property to because it was adjacent to his farm. And, you know, he always sort of had notions and dreams of, you know, building it out into something, building the space into something. But he never really did that. He sort of, you know, went on to other projects, other ideas, all in the farm, but not really here in this building. And so uh, he died in the 1980s. My grandmother uh, decided in the late nineties that it would be a good thing, uh, to sell it to, you know, some do-gooders at a, at a pretty fair price so that they could build a community center and, and historical, uh, collection here. And to be honest, it's probably the smartest thing my family's ever done because what the folks who run the Barrier Island Center have done is, is wildly exceeded any of our hopes and expectations for what could be done with the property, what should be done with the property. Right. Um, you know, it was in a certain sense wasted on our family because we just didn't have 
a vision or or the or the ambition to build something like this. And the Barrier Island Center is just incredible. And it's it's wonderful to see. And I get to look at it from next door every day, which is great too. Thelma Peterson, Eastern Shore artist and musician, tells of her inspiration to found the organization, known as the Barrier Islands Center. So tell me a bit about how this property was acquired to be the home for the Barrier Islands Center. Early on in the Sharing the Mic series, I interviewed Devlin Barrett, whose mother's parents sold part of their farm, which is now the Barrier Islands Center property. Exactly. So how did those negotiations go? And well, that was yet another stars aligning themselves in a, in a beautiful pattern. The board had been negotiating and working with the Nature Conservancy, who at the time was moving the Cobb Island Coast Guard Station to the mainland, and were very interested in us being an anchor tenant our, to make a museum there, and we were thrilled. And we were in negotiations with them for probably close to a year, when it, when it push came to shove, our board just decided that if we were going to roll up our sleeves and put all our efforts into raising money to restore a building, it ought to be a building that we owned ourselves. And so we decided not to go through with that. And it was a huge letdown in a way because we had worked so hard and you would think in your mind, what better place to have a museum than in a Coast Guard station? But it was an oyster. It wasn't on the beaten path, and there was a lot of opposition on the board. They thought it should be more visible. So one of our board members, Amin Kellum, was really good, close friends with Dot Gibb, who was the owner of this property. And she was having lunch or tea with her a few days later, and Dot always was interested in what we were doing. And she asked Amin how things were going, you know, with the Cobb Island Coast Guard Station. And, and Amin told her, well, you know, that just didn't quite work out. And Dot told Amin, you tell Thelma to call me tomorrow. Wow. So that was the the door that opened that eventually led to Dot and her daughters Blair and Betsy making this property available to the Barry Allen Center at a price that was one that we were able to, with some aggressive fundraising, um, meet. So oh. that's how that property and Dot Gibb is the catalyst for us having and her friendship with Amin Callum. Yeah, well, that's the way things happen, and the it's, rest is history. Yeah, yeah. So that's how that's how we acquired the property, and then we um, once we had the property, then at least we had a building. So when we were trying to find uh, supporters and get, you know, have people um, realize um, the importance and. It's one thing to have a pie-in-the-sky idea. is another one to take them to a building that needs work, but here's a building. And we were able to, to be able to raise enough money through donations and, and selling the rooms in memory of or in honor of to raise the mo enough money and meeting some match grants that were available to us to be able to not only purchase this property, but to restore it to where we opened the doors without having to borrow a dollar. That's amazing. And as in the movie, um, build it and they, they will come, that's what happened is when we had our grand opening, people started showing up with artifacts. This, was, this has been in our attic. 
it came off of Hog Island, or all of a sudden, once the building was here and people saw, well, this is not just a pie in the sky, and they, they saw what it was going to be, then the artifacts, they started coming. Did you have a particular vision as to what you wanted it to be? I mean, the organization certainly has grown and kind of become its own thing. Uh, but initially, was it simply to be a museum? Or did you envision all these other programs that go on here now? Well, there was, there was no way that I could carry the ball that far down the court to see what it's turned into now and am thrilled to see the outreach programs and, and how the community have just um, taken over ownership of this building. They're proud of this facility. Um, initially, I would have to say, you know, it was a real struggle to be able to get this thing going. You know, we had started off with no money and, and it was a lot of things to go through. And I think initially it was thought of more as to be able to have a museum and according to our mission statement, you know, to be able to um, preserve and interpret the, the way of living, the life and culture of the people of the Barrier Islands and the history. And that was our focus when, as we were striving to acquire the property, restore the property and open the doors. But we also knew the, the potential of the space that we have here and the buildings that we have here, and that in time, with more funding and more renovations of the other buildings, which has happened, I was the first 10 years of the Barrier Island Center from, you know, founding, and I stayed with it, a chairman of the board and president for 10 years, and that was really the museum, the artifacts, and, and preserving those artifacts and trying to keep them from leaving the Eastern Shore. I would say the next 10 years under Laura's watch, which has been fabulous, has really reached out into so many other um, areas that are significant and important to the Eastern Shore and the Barrier Islands and the people who visit and the people who live here. Laura Vaughn, the first executive director of the BIC, speaks of her initial challenges and vision for the future. You and your staff have certainly had good fortune in attracting top-notch talent to work with you. Um, I'm particularly impressed with the relationships you've formed with Jim Spione, is that mm -hmm. correct? Spione, uh-huh. Spione, uh, the filmmaker, and Andrew Barber, the author of Hog Island Sheep Books. Tell me kind of how you guys sniff that talent out. <laughs> That's a great question, and it's so typical BIC. I would like to say at this point in time, when the Barrier Island Center Board of Directors hired me, they were concerned about how to make it all work and pay the light bill. And that was my luckiest day because I don't want to say they were desperate, but they said to me, make it yours and do it your way, which was my luckiest day because I had no experience. And so I did, I was given this gift. So I followed my instincts and lucky for me, when Kristen Dennis and Sally Dickinson came along, I had not been there a year before I I had them in the nest. And so they caught 
caught the fascination from me. And everyone that came through that front door or up that front walk, we were fascinated with. And of course, human beings by nature, if you're if you're interested in them, they're going to respond. And they are so capable. So here's how we got the movie, ma'am. So Sally said, well, we need to do camp, children's camp, um, at this new Barrier Island Center. So we're going to do pirate camp. And we were all in. So we're hosting our first pirate camp. And let's say it's about, um, I don't know, six to eight children or whatever. And we're out on the front porch with the rocking chairs and Mamas and daddies are dropping off these children the first day of pirate camp. And I look around, and I recognize all of the parents except one, and one child I don't know. So I was drawn like a magnet to find out who that was that I didn't know. I said, um, how you do? Um, my name's Laura. And he said, I'm Jim, and this is my son, Sam. And I said, well, now tell me where you're from. And he said, well, actually, we live in Manhattan. Well, when you tell somebody like me that you live in New York City and you're on the front porch, that's a big day in my life. So I said, in my typical country way, New York City? And he said, well, yes. And I said, oh, wow. I said, well, listen, I'm going to ask you something. And I know better, and I happen to know that it's bad manners, but I don't care. i got to do this one. I said, so what do you do in New York City? And he said, well, I make movies. And so then I was in with both feet, and I said, well, we want to make a movie. And uh, (laughs) he said, well, that's interesting because I've always thought I would love to do some film work down here. He had been coming. His in-laws at that time had a place at Willis's Wharf. And so um, I said, well, we are in. (laughs) I had nothing backing me up, just typical me. So he said, well, I have a movie that I've made that has its own website, and it's called American Farm Movie, and it's on the Internet. So I wrote it down, and he said "Now he said to his little boy, he said, I'll be back here at 12 to pick you up. So I went flying in there, and Sally um, was inside the museum. I said, Sally, look, one of the daddies of one of your pirate camp children is a movie maker, and um, we're going to make a movie. And she was like, okay, I could sink my teeth into that. And so Sally and I got on the one and only computer, and we looked it up, and daggone if his style his documentary, heartfelt, kind of Ken Burnsy style, was exactly, oh my gosh, it was like, it was as if he was born to do this for us. So <laughs> I said, Sally, we, we're on, we're going to do this one. And so by Friday, when Jim Spion left with his son from the pirate camp, we had an agreement, a handshake agreement, and we were in the movie making business. <laughs> so we we met we got our movie maker at Pirate Camp, <laughs> and really that's where all of the talent has come from. We most certainly would say, especially in the early days, but I feel that way now too. That it's come through the front door. All these fascinating, talented people that the Barrier Island Center has 
enjoyed and brought to the community. We have um, had the pleasure of having them come through the front door, literally. It's certainly a tribute to you and the staff that Thank you. there's been a mutual attraction so that these projects can get off the ground and soar. I mean, right. six films later, right? Really? Yes. And, we're, and we already know, I, I don't know if Sally would say has pulled the trigger, but yeah, I would say we have on our next one and it's a secret. So, but she'll be telling that one soon enough. And now, Sally Dickinson, the current executive director, reveals the secret. I'm really impressed with the six films that uh, Barrier Island Center has produced with Jim Spione. Uh, When I spoke with Laura Vaughn earlier, she said that uh, you might have something to tell us with regard to a new project. Can you talk about that at this point? Yes, I'd I'd love to. We're very excited about this. So this will be our seventh film working with Jim. And um, we we decided this this time we're going to focus just on one of the barrier islands on Cobb Island and the Cobb family that settled there. Um, We are right now in the research and development stage and um, and reading and and learning and and thinking about who we can actually um, sit down and interview. And of course, the Bear Island Center has beautiful Cobb artifacts, uh, decoys, and an amazing set of photographs from Cobb Island. And so we we really have a lot of the pieces there already. So um, we're getting ready to start our interviewing process. And they will, Jim and the cameraman come down um, several times from New York and we hope to get the filming done by this fall. And then the final film will be ready in spring of 2022. Jim Spione, film director, explains his involvement and what the films mean. Our Island Home, the first Barrier Islands film, was released in 2008. Since then, you've released five more BIC films, and you're now here working on the seventh. How did this all begin? What drew you to the Eastern Shore, and what prompted you to explore the Barrier Islands as subject matter for films? Right. Well, I I certainly never expected this to turn into a... 12-year-plus longitudinal study on the entire way of life here, but that's kind of the way it it worked out. At first, I just thought we were making that one little movie. Our Island Home was about three people who um, knew about the way of life on Hog Island, and some of the last people to remember that, that way of life, and so... We just profiled the three of them. I thought it was just going to be that one movie, but the Bear Island Center has a way of, like, drawing you in, as the Eastern Shore does. As Norris Bowen says in that film, uh, keeps you wanting to come back. My son was actually in camp here. I was coming down to visit the Eastern Shore. Uh, my wife at the time, her family had a place in, in Willis Wharf. And so we are coming down here. My son, who was about eight at the time, was in pirate camp. So I just uh, happened to be picking him up, and Laura Vaughn, the director of the uh, center then, happened to be on the front porch, and we started chatting. And 
Uh, she's like, what do you do? I said, oh, I make documentaries. She goes, oh, we'd like to make a documentary. I was like, okay. And then, like, six weeks later, I came back and was making a documentary for them. Uh, I think it was in October, and we shot that very quickly, I think in a weekend. Wow. And that became our island home, and it all kind of came out of that foundational experience. And, of course, the, the Barry Island Center is very much about the islands and the island way of life. And so is, so is this region is very island-infused, I would say, with that culture. It naturally grew from there, and in each film, we sort of took on another subject, and we'd sort of widen our focus a little bit or uh, do another sort of thread in the tapestry of life here. And so it's grown very organically, I think. Um, it's kind of an overused word, but it kind of, there was no grand master plan. It was just, what are we going to do next? We did Spirit of the Bird, which was about decoy uh, carvers, um, the carvers here, and and of course, the culture that goes along with that, the hunting, right. and, um, um, and how that sort of evolved from something very utilitarian into a, a folk art and a collectible. And then we did Watermen, about the people who work on the water, and independent fishermen here. And we did The Last Hunt Clubs, about the, uh, that was sort of going back out to the islands and looking at that whole space between the Civil War and um, the Great Depression, basically, when there were this, this right. thriving sort of series of, of um, more than the eastern shore of Virginia, really up and down the east coast, of um, kind of a mecca for sportsmen and all of these different resorts kind of uh, opened up there. And so that was The Last Hunt Clubs. Of course, we were kind of exploring the the ruins and and um, what was left there, and then going back in time and talking about you know what that way of life was like, and then from there we did Welcome to the Table, which was about food culture and food ways of the shore, and the wonderful uh, Bernie Herman from uh, uh, University of North Carolina came down, and of course he's written a wonderful book about that, The South You Never Ate, and that was just like my favorite film to shoot actually because. Essentially, what we did is we went to each uh, person we profiled uh, home, and we uh, asked them to cook their their best thing, and then we ate it. Uh, after we we filmed them making it, we ate it. So I, I ate like a king on that. Nothing wrong with that. No, that was that was wonderful. Um, and then uh, and then we did gatherings, and gatherings was um, really uh, it's interesting because at one point I thought we were talking about various ideas, and I thought you know we should do something on music and the music traditions and scene on the shore and and we bandied it back and forth and the people at the Bear Island Center were like, I, you know, I'm not sure there is a musical tradition per se. I'm not sure what we do. So we ended up doing this thing on gathering um, places. That was the thing they wanted to do. Well, wouldn't you know, every one of them involved music anyway and the, 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 that movie's like a musical. Yeah. I mean, we went yeah. to the Do Drop In and there was a performance there and we went to Chair Place, this wonderful, yeah. you know, jam session on Thursday nights in Craddockville. And so I turned out to make something about music anyway. But it was about much more than that because that one was really about how important in this area where people kind of live far apart, these community uh, centers are these gathering points for different cultural events the Barry Island Center being one of them, and a critical one. So we actually yeah. included the the center in our one of our stories for the right. first time. Um, but that was rather poignant for me to work on because, you know, we shot that in 2019, and then while I was editing it, the pandemic hit, and everything in that movie became impossible to have. And it really brought home for me how important social connection is to 
us, and I think universally, not just here on the mm -hmm. shore, but um, I think that was one of the most damaging things about the pandemic. I think there was a lot of trauma that people went through and maybe are still dealing with uh, from that lack of, of contact for so long, that isolation. Right. So um, that was kind of really special film for me to make. And it really, I really felt like having that sort of record and testament really to how important community connection is and how important it is going to be to get that back. Right. Uh, this is an incredibly long-winded answer to your single questions, but I knew I would spin out into, so that was, that was gatherings and, um, uh, and then right now we're working on something on the Cobb family, on uh, right. Nathan Cobb Sr., who came down from Eastham in um, the early uh, to mid-19th uh, century. Yeah, hold that thought. I was particularly impressed, and I watched all the films. Uh, I kind of binged on them when I knew that you were going to be here. I was really impressed in the way the stories unfold without... Uh, a narrator as such, but through the words that the folks that are speaking and the visual images that we see, can you share with us how you managed to get these very natural and conversational performances, if you will, from everyday folk on the Eastern Shore? Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting you say performances, and and they are characters in a way. And um, as someone who has made uh, fiction films as well, um, my work is very informed by that in certain respects. And my fiction work is very informed by the documentary work. I see them kind of the same in a way. It's storytelling. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew, you know, even from my first documentary, which was about the history of my family's dairy farm in upstate New York, I wanted these stories to be told in the voices of the people who've lived these, this experience and have connection to this history as well. So I don't use narrators. I don't like that approach. Um, to me, it's, it's much more engaging if it's these, the stories of first-person experience. And that's how I've made all my documentaries, not just these, this particular group of the Eastern mm -hmm. Shore series. So um, how do I do that? I, I don't really know. You know, when you turn a camera on somebody, um, it, it, you know, that thing can happen sometimes where people freeze up. People want to be heard. Eastern Shore resident Andrew Barber explains how he was drawn in to the Barrier Island Center orbit and the result. Well, one of the things we're certainly going to talk about are the three books you've written for the Barrier Island Center. Do you remember your first experience with the Barrier Island Center, how you came to be involved? Well, as, as I said, we moved here 20 years ago, and the Barrier Island Center was just really getting going at that point. Um, and it was essentially a museum to start with. It didn't have a lot of the outreach programs that they went on to set up. And I remember actually taking my parents there. They were visiting from South Africa, and we went up there, and I showed them around. And also at that time, we had small children, as did you know, Sally Dickinson had small children. And so we also were drawn into that orbit later. Uh, as Sally got involved, we we came to know the Barrier Island Center a lot better. But that first experience was really just a walk-in to see the museum with my parents. 
Man, that's another very familiar story. Yes. A lot of the people that have gotten involved have just popped in because they saw it on the highway and that's the right. rest is history, right. right? And it's always good. I mean, we, we moved here and, you know, it's always good to know the underlying story of a place you live in. And that's one of the great places to learn about it. So, What prompted you to write uh, A Twisted Christmas Tale? They asked me to. <laughs> okay. okay. They, um, you know, my wife and I had both worked at Scholastic um, in New York. And even though we weren't on the children's side, we were on the professional side, um, I, I think maybe they felt we had some connection to uh, that world. And so they asked me to take a crack at it. Uh, and I had never worked, I'd never written fiction, and I'd never written for children. Um, I was, uh, you know, my writing background was was rather different from that, but it was a, a great challenge. And they made it easier by giving me sort of the ingredient list of what needed to be in the book, because it is a book that's underlying is to teach kids a little bit about this place. And excuse me, that's a question I was going to ask. Uh did it start out to be kind of an educational book or was it just a fun little story or it was intended to to have an educational component to it and understanding that uh sugar is easier than uh, is an easy way to take your medicine wrapping it up into a fun uh children's book with sheep made it much you know much more palatable and so there were elements that they wanted to get into the book um the the arms house itself and the history of the arms house um the twisted chimney the hog island sheep which is this this now standalone breed that developed out on the on the islands they wanted all these different elements brought in and so i just needed to fit the puzzle pieces together and 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 pull it together into a coherent story. So that was, and I think they did me a favor by giving me these must-haves. It it, it made it easy for me to construct. Them. Sure. Once you're constrained by something, then you don't have to wander out and flounder. <laughs> That's right. I did not have to beat about in the bushes. A Christmas Tale was published in 2012, and then. The Hog Island Sheep in Red, White, and You was published in 2014. The Hog Island Sheep in a State of You Nation was published in 2015. Explain a little bit about how the, the whole series evolved. And also, they seem to all center on Hog Island one way or the other. Was there a particular reason that Hog Island was chosen? Because there is now going to be a film about Hog Island. Yeah. Well, I... It's the sheep. It comes back to the sheep. Um, and it's the Hog Island uh, sheep are a breed. And once we started down that road of, of concocting a story involving sheep, it was always going to have to stick with Hog Island. You know, Hog Island itself, the history of Hog Island was, was fascinating um, with Broadwater, the town of Broadwater at the end. So there was a lot of material to go through and a lot to teach kids about. So there wasn't any, it wasn't a dearth of material. Um, and the sheep was the framework on which we could construct more stories that looked at various phases of the history of those, of the islands. You know, we didn't think it through all the way. So the first book, in terms of a linear rollout, there's no such thing. We go forward, we go back, we go forward. It's it's not a, you know, the Grover Cleveland would have been the third book, should have come first. Um, but 
that's not how it turned out. Are there any more planned? No, there are no more plans. I think I have ex- I have gone through every sheep pun I can come up with. I think I'm completely sheeped out at this point. And that's about all we have time for today. But just so you know, if you need that special gift, all of the films and books we've discussed on this podcast can be purchased online or in person at the BIC gift shop. Go to www.barrierislandscenter.org. You have been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's Eastern Shore. Sally Dickinson, Executive Director. Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager. Megan Ames, Director of Planning and Development. Tracy Jones, Director of Education. The Barrier Island Center is located at 7295 Young Street in Machipongo, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter.org. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to bicpodcast at icloud.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and be well.